It's good to be with you again, and uh, I just love being able to come and share. Let's uh, go to the Lord and ask His blessing on our time. Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for Your mercies that are new every morning. We thank You for Your great faithfulness, because without Your faithfulness to us, we would be certainly lost. We thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, and we thank you for your Word and your Holy Spirit who opens our eyes and ears to the Word. We just pray for his ministry in our hearts today. Help us to hear your Word uh, and not to just be hearers, but to be doers. Grant us the grace that we need to put your Word into practice in our lives every day. And we'll thank you for all you do. In Jesus' name. All right, let me get my power on here. I mentioned uh, last week that we have a new pastor, and uh, I was having, uh, he's fresh out of seminary, 29 years old, same age I was when I started pastoring that church uh, in Greenville. And uh, I was having lunch with him, and he was talking about a sermon that he had preached the week before, and he just kind of shook his head and said, man, that was convicting. Because as a pastor, he's now grappling with not just studying the Word of God academically, but studying it in the context of a, of a church where he is exhorting people. And the passage was out of Ephesians where Paul is in prison for sharing the gospel and uh, the church elders had an issue concerning a, an evangelism program and whether or not they were going to take it on. And, and uh, you know, he was... For the first time, maybe, wrestling with the practical implications of the Word of God in his life. And all that is to say, I begin this message with a disclaimer. Uh, the passage I'm going to preach is one of those passages that you cannot study without feeling really, really convicted. And it's as if, as you, you know, I went through this last week, you know, the Lord just kind of said, you know, Jim, you're not doing any of this stuff. Uh, and so I, the passage that we're going to deal with this morning, I'll let you know in advance, I'm pointing no fingers except the fingers that I point at myself. But this is what I learned this week. Now, with that introduction, let's talk about special days. Special days, you know, it's... Uh, you, you can hardly get on Facebook or anything anymore without somebody saying, well, in fact, I have a friend who uh, posts, well, today is national, you know, fill in the blank, whatever, day. Uh, it seems like we have special days for everything nowadays. And uh, most of them you've probably never heard of, might never hear of, aside from me bringing them up to you today. Uh, now, I happen to have a very special day that coincides with my birthday. And you will never forget my birthday after this, I promise you. And so I will expect cards and gifts to come in the mail. Um, my birthday is September 19th. It is also National Talk Like a Pirate Day, <laughs> and so, which has actually become international now. And so I have the coolest birthday in the world because I can't get to walk around talking like a pirate all day uh, and nobody thinks I'm crazy. Uh, but uh, 
there are all sorts of special days, but I want to focus on one day next month, March 13th, uh, just a couple weeks away. Uh, March 13th, of course, has quite a few different uh, special days associated. And, and if you, you know, research this, if you're really inclined, and I don't know why you would be, but uh, if you're inclined to research this, you can find that every day of the year just about has five or six sp special days associated with it. March 13th, I'm going to give you a few that you may celebrate if you choose. Uh, the first one, if I can get my PowerPoint to catch up with me, is National Jewel Day. I don't get to celebrate that one much. Uh, next one. National Napping Day, I do celebrate that a lot. <laughs> Next one, if you are a, you know, in, interested in uh, you know, pushing the boundaries of superstition, National Open and Umbrella Indoors Day. Incidentally, if you go to the website, National Day Calendar, they even give you instructions on how to celebrate these days. Uh, I, don't know why you would need them, but uh, the next one, which probably is not celebrated much in Texas, is National Earmuff Day. Um, I have rarely, in the 30 plus years I've lived in North Texas, I have occasionally worn some, something over my ears, but not often. But the one I really want you to focus on, this is also March 13th, don't forget the day, is National Good Samaritan Day. Uh, now that's interesting to me for a couple of reasons, but just you know, in case you don't know how to celebrate this one, this is the day when you're supposed to go out and do something nice for somebody else. Okay, so, so now you know. Uh, at least one day a year, you can focus on being nice to somebody else. But the reason I, I bring that day up is not because of the special day, but because the phrase, Good Samaritan, is first of all, you know, if, if John 3.16 is the most well-known Bible verse of all, then almost certainly the parable of the Good Samaritan is the most well-known of Jesus' parables. And it has pervaded into our culture. If, if you, you know, just look online, you'll find you know, Good Samaritan on all sorts of different organizations, this is a health system. Uh, many states have Good Samaritan laws that are to protect you if you, like if you try to help somebody on the side of the road that's been hurt and maybe you do something wrong, you know, you're not gonna get sued or you can't be thrown in jail for it. Uh, I thought that one was interesting because this one is, you will not be ar arrested for, uh, you know, uh, possession or use of, un of controlled substances uh, if you happen to help somebody who's, uh, you know, having, having drug issues. Um, whatever. Uh, there are charitable Good Samaritan, uh, you know, Good Samaritan 5K runs. And even the news media, you know, if, if you watch stories about someone who has stopped to help somebody on the road, like this was a case where a car had flipped and, and a bunch of people came and helped pull uh, a lady from uh, this flipped car, what does the news media call them? Not nice people. They call them Good Samaritans. So the concept of the Good Samaritan is one of those concepts that has so pervaded our culture that virtually everybody knows that I promise you, you could probably go out uh, and, and just stop somebody on the street that you've never met before and ask them, what is a Good Samaritan? and chances are pretty good they will be able to give you a definition, a dictionary definition. Incidentally, the term even make, made the di dictionary. 
it is a good or a charitable or helpful person. That's how our culture understands what a good Samaritan is. A good Samaritan is somebody who helps somebody else. It's pretty basic. But the thing about uh, parables like that, or, or things that have become so familiar, so engaged uh, by the culture and, and by Christians, that sometimes that familiarity tends to cause us to really miss what's happening, to really miss understanding what's going on in that parable. Now, last week, we saw in the first half of John chapter 10, and we'll be in the second half of John chapter 10 today, we saw Jesus send 70 or 72, depending on the text, uh, disciples out on a mission trip, a virtually the same kind of mission trip that the 12 went on not long before that. And he sends them into villages where he's planning to go as he heads toward Jerusalem. And he says, you know, go in, heal people, you know, proclaim the word of God, tell them that the kingdom of God has come near to you. And you'll remember that as they uh, come back from that mission trip, the 70 are elated. They are just, they're pumped up. They're, they're overwhelmed with joy. And they come to Jesus and they say, even the demons are subject to us. Remember, these people are the people that have been following along with the other disciples. They're not in the inner circle. They, they have seen Jesus' works from a distance. But now they've gone out and they've healed people. And they've cast demons out of people. And they say, even the demons are subject to us. And you remember that Jesus says, don't rejoice because the demons are subject to you. Instead, rejoice that your names are written down in heaven. And the point that I drew as, as I closed last week is that the, the, the ultimate joy and motivation in ministry comes out of an overflow of your joy and your love for the Lord. As we talk about ministry, whether it's personal ministry, whether it's corporate ministry in a church, whether it's you know, foreign missions, genuine ministry overflows out of your love for God and out of your joy in him. Now, right on the heels of that, Luke moves to a one-on-one -on -one question. So we've gone from the, the 70 or 72, now we're down to just kind of a one-on-one. -on -one. Now, Luke doesn't give us context, and depending on the translation you read, you know, some will imply that this happened just right on the heels of this, others just like I'm using the NIV, uh, and it just starts out on one occasion. So, so we really don't know if what we're about to look at happened immediately after Jesus was talking with these disciples, or if Luke has just put it strategically here. But he brings us a one-on-one -on -one issue between Jesus and a lawyer, or a scribe, somebody who is an expert in the law. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That was evidently a very common question, something often discussed with rabbis. Uh, you'll know this isn't the only time that that question comes up to Jesus. You remember the, the rich young ruler runs up, uh, comes up to him and asks the same question. So this is a fairly common question. And this expert in the law stands up and 
says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you know, don't read necessarily negative implications into it. It doesn't necessarily say that this guy is trying to trap Jesus. It does say he's, he, he's testing him, but it could be that he just wants to see where Jesus is theologically, to see if he understands where he is. Whatever, he asks that question. Now, the thing I love about how Jesus interacts with people is it's totally different how we would. Somebody came up to me and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? I'm going to reach in and pull out my four spiritual laws, and I'm going to sit down. And, well, first you do this and this and this and this. Jesus answers his question with a question. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So Jesus isn't just going to give him a pat answer. He wants to make the person think. It might not be a bad idea for you and me in evangelism situations to not be so quick to just try to bring out a formula. But when somebody asks us a spiritual question, interact and kind of lead them to think the issue through. So Jesus asks, what's in the law? How do you read it? Well, man gives a good answer. He says, love the Lord your God, verse 27, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, now again, you know, we might look at that and say, wow, Jesus, are you telling him work salvation? No, Jesus isn't giving him work salvation. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you are going to come to him. You are going to do, uh, place your trust in him. That, those aren't light words. Those aren't a formula. And if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the next one is going to follow. You will love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So Jesus gives him a very uncomfortable answer. He doesn't give him closure. He says, okay, you got the right answer. You got the head knowledge. Well, the lawyer wasn't totally satisfied with that. He says he wanted to justify himself. And so he poses a second question. The second question he asks is, and who is my neighbor? And boy, he opened the door there. Because now Jesus launches into what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That was a, not only a long trip, but it was a very vertical trip. You're going from about 2,500 feet above sea level to about 800 feet below sea level. And it's very rocky terrain, and there are a lot of places where robbers could and did hide. And so it was a very perilous journey going from Jerusalem down to Jericho. Well, it says he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So he set up the scenario. Man's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. Maybe he's coming down, uh, having just worshipped and been at the temple. He's on his way home. He's attacked by robbers. They leave him beaten, stripped, and robbed, left for dead. 
Now Jesus goes on in the story. He says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. When he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So we have a priest who's coming, again, down. So the implication is he's coming away from Jerusalem, and he's heading home. Well, this priest, this one who serves in the temple, sees this man, naked, half-dead, lying in the road, and he carefully goes to the other side of the road and walks by. Now let's give him the benefit of the doubt. He may have been concerned about ritual defilement. Don't know if the guy's dead or not. If he's dead, if I touch a corpse, I'm defiled. I'm a priest. I'm not supposed to be defiled. So we'll give him that. Next comes a Levite. Verse 32. So a Levite, when he came, now it doesn't say whether he's going up or down, but when he came to the place and saw him, he also kind of passed by on the other side. Now, if this is a, a group of people, and I, I think the implication when it says a, 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 a lawyer or a scribe stood up uh, to question Jesus, I'm going to assume that Jesus is talking to a crowd here, that this is not just a total one-on-one -on -one aside. If you were in the crowd and if you were an Israelite, you might have thought, ah, I see where this story's going. Because... The priest, if you put it, put it in the modern vernacular, you know, preacher or pastor. Levite, worship leader. We see these guys coming down the road. They walk by. And if you are a, a Jew, if you're an Israelite sitting there in that group listening, you know who the third person is going to be. Because we've had the priest, who weren't always held in extremely high regard, you had the Levite, but next in the story is going to be the good Israelite who is going to come, and as the good Israelite comes, he's going to see this man who's hurt, and he's going to reach down, he's going to pick him up, and he's going to help him. Jesus is a master storyteller, and he loves plot twists, and he throws a big plot twist in here because the next character is not a good Israelite. Okay, I don't know if my batteries are dying or what. It's not working. There it is. Whoop, too far. Up, oh, too far back. There we go. The next character is a Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. A uh, word is sometimes translated compassion. And compassion on him. So what does he do? Well, there are three words that we have in the English language that are sometimes interpreted as, as compassion or, or pity. One is sympathy. One is empathy. And one is compassion. Sympathy means I feel sorry for you. Empathy means I feel your pain. I've been where you are. I know what you're feeling like. Compassion says, I'm going to do something about it. And so the Samaritan 
had compassion on him. Well, what does he do? He goes to him and he bandages his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. The oil would have served to soften and clean the wound. The wine would act as a disinfectant. So he was treating him with kind of -of state-of-the-art medical care for that day. He didn't just stop there, though. It says he put the man on his own donkey. So, uh, you know, assuming that he was riding, maybe he wasn't, maybe he was walking and leading the donkey, but either way, he puts the man, picks him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to an inn, and then he takes care of him. You know, it's, it's, it's not like he just, okay, you know, I've given you the oil and wine, you're on your own from now on. Uh, now, okay, I'm going to take you to an inn, I'll, I'll leave you there. No, it says he stayed and he took care of him. In other words, he, he put his agenda, his personal issues, whatever it was he was doing, why he was going wherever he was going, put those on the back burner, and he says he took care of him. Well, for how long? Well, evidently the rest of that day. Because it says the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So he doesn't just say, hey, I have gone over and above what I needed to do. I've got this guy in an inn. You know, he can, he can chill here for a while. He'll have to pick up the rest of the bill, obviously. No, he takes out two denarii. Uh, most of the commentaries I read said this would have been enough to care for him for at least a few more weeks, if not longer. And he says, here's, here's some money to take care of him. You feed him. You give him whatever treatment he needs. And then he could have gone off and said, well, I really, boy, I did well today. You know, I have done my bit. But he doesn't stop there. He says, when I return, I will cover any extra expenses that you may have had. So he guarantees that this man isn't going to be cast out whenever the money runs out. It's safe to say that the Samaritan went way, way over and above what would have been re- you know, reasonably expected in caring for this man. So, you know, the parable ends there, and then Jesus poses a question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, I would have loved to have heard the tone of his voice and seen his expression when he said this. You can't read it into the scripture. You don't know if this is grudgingly. Because sometimes I read, well, he didn't say the Samaritan because he couldn't get that word out of his mouth because they hated Samaritans. He said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, okay, go and do likewise. And that's where it ends. And again, you wonder what that man's reaction was. Did he take it to heart? Did he go away a changed man? Did he just blow it off? That's left open for us. Because in a very real sense, every one of us stands in the place of that man 
who asked Jesus the question. What does it mean for us? Well, you remember I said when the uh, disciples came back from their mission trip, they were rejoicing. The demons had been subject, you know, they had had a powerful ministry. They'd gone out and they'd, they'd healed and they'd, they'd you know, maybe had raised the dead. We don't know. It doesn't say that. But who knows? But they'd healed and they'd cast out demons at the very least. And they're pumped because of the, the power of their ministry. And Jesus said, don't rejoice in the power of your ministry. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let your joy in God overflow. And that is what I want to see in you. Remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Or as I quoted at the end of the last message, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. As you love God, that overflows into ministry. But just in case we need exhortation, the second half of that is love your neighbor as yourself. God doesn't let us off the hook. Now I want to make two observations on that parable that we can take away with us. Observation number one is as Jesus tells that story, Jesus flips the script. Again, he loved plot twists. And this was a big one. Because the audience would have been expecting a good Israelite to be the third person in that story. Yeah, the priests, we know they're lining their pockets. Levites, eh. But we good Israelites, we would help that man laying on the ground. Jesus flips the script in a very obvious way when the man who shows up is a hated Samaritan. Somebody that they wouldn't even have dealings with. But he flips the script in another way. You know, if I were writing that story, I might have had a Samaritan in it. But you know where I would have put him? I'd have made the Samaritan the guy on the road. Because then, you know, the priest goes by, ignores. The Levite goes by, ignores. And then the godly person comes. And he sees a hated Samaritan that he wants nothing to do with. But his love for God overwhelms him. And he goes and he touches the Samaritan. And he picks him up. And he takes him and he takes care of him. That's how I would have written it. Good thing I didn't. Because Jesus' way was much, much better. Because he flips the script. And the good guy in the story is the hated Samaritan. If we were telling it today, we might have a pastor as the first guy that comes by, uh, a, a worship leader as the second guy, and then a Muslim as the third guy. Oh. See, that puts a whole different spin on the story. But he doesn't stop there. The genius and beauty of the Good Samaritan is Jesus also flipped the question. What did the man ask? Who is my neighbor? Well, when you ask that question, you immediately are implying that there are boundaries. You know, that, well, 
if I can define what a neighbor is, then I have to take care of those who are in that circle, but anybody outside that circle I don't have to worry about. Now, we would think that the way Jesus flipped the, the question is in finding the answer, everybody's my neighbor. No. Or, or the person who needs me is my neighbor. In fact, I've heard that said in, in discussions about this passage, who is my neighbor? Anybody who needs me. Mm -mm. You know why? Because if the person who needs me is my neighbor, then I can eliminate those who don't need me. And of course, I can always define those who don't need me. Now, Jesus flips the question in a marvelous way. Martin Luther King said it this way. The first question which the priest and the Levite asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? I'll be unclean. I might be looked down upon. You know, I won't be able to minister. I won't be able to do this. But the good Samaritan reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? You see, the question isn't who am I to be a neighbor to? The question is, what if I am not a neighbor? What happens if I don't reach out? What happens if I don't help people, whoever they are, who need me? You know, it's kind of the same reasoning that let God send his son into the world for a world that had no use for him. Who sent his own son, not just into the world, but to a cross for a world that had no use for him. John says we love him because he loved us first. Paul says in Galatians, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. He also says in Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Now that graphic doesn't have the entire verse. The entire verse is, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are the household of faith. And I think the implication is, reach out to everybody, but remember, don't let your zeal in reaching out to everybody let you ignore the body of Christ as well. Because it isn't who is my neighbor, it's who am I going to be a neighbor to. Now, bringing it back to ministry, and we're going to wrap this up quickly. In the church, there is the mindset that we must grow, we must become bigger, because if we're healthy, we're going to grow, we're going to have lots more people, we're going to be you know, pushing the walls out on the place. You know, this is God's ideal for a church. No. Numbers, as I've said before, if you live by numbers, you die by numbers. What God wants in a church and in a healthy church is a church that is not afraid to reach out. A church that is not afraid to minister 
wherever and however God opens an opportunity. Now, there are dangers here, both personally and, and corporately. One danger, uh, personally, is if you really take this seriously, it can become overwhelming because where do I stop? I mean, you get on Facebook and there might be five GoFundMe accounts for people that have cancer or, or are in dire need. And it's like, you know, I can't, I can't solve every problem. God doesn't ask you to solve every problem. It says, as we have opportunity, God wants you and me to be sensitive to those around us, to the opportunities he brings by, and to reach out, to become people who are moved by compassion, not by sympathy. I feel sorry for that person. Not by empathy. Man, I've gone through that. I've been there. But compassion. Is there something I can do? Personally, there's a good prayer to pray every day. God, you know, just show me how I can show compassion on somebody today. It might just be an email to somebody who you know is hurting. It might be sending flowers to somebody who lost a spouse. I mean, I'm not going to go with tons of suggestions because that limits your thinking as well as mine. But you know what I mean. God, show me who I can minister to, who I can reach out to. Corporately, kind of the same thing. Well, we're a little church. We don't have tons of money to do great ministries. God hasn't called you to do great expensive ministries. God has called you to say, God, what can we do? How can we reach out? I mean, what you're doing with the international students is, is one awesome, awesome way. We did that when I was pastoring with, uh, uh, it was back then, uh, East Texas State University in Commerce. Awfully rewarding ministry. You know, pray corporately. God, show us who we as a body can touch. And give us wisdom and give us the faith and give us the strength to be that good Samaritan. To be the person and the church who have resolved that I'm going to reach out as God gives me opportunity and as God gives me direction. And then pray for that direction. Pray for that opportunity. God will honor that. The kind of church that pleases God isn't one that can continually say, look at our financial and numerical statistics. They're always going up. The kind of church that pleases God is the church that does his will and reaches out to others as he reached out to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father. We love you. Lord, I know how far short I fall in this area. I have so often been guilty of thinking, let somebody else do it. Lord, help us as individuals and as a body to glorify you by being the kind of people who reach out and touch those who are in need, whether they are part of the household of faith, whether they are not. Grant that we might live as Jesus lived and walk as he walked. We'll give you the praise for all that you do in Jesus' name.